Fiat Lex, a podcast about dictionaries by people who write them. I'm Steve Kleinedler. And I'm Corey Stamper. Hello. Uh, today we're going to uh, talk about how we got where we are, specifically, Corey and me, why yeah. we're here talking about this. Yeah. This is something that lots of people ask, oh, how do I become a lexicographer? And, you know, the fact is, is you become a lexicographer by being in the right place at the right time. But there are sort of patterns for people who are good at this and stick around in the job and yeah so we'll talk a little bit about how we got here and the patterns that led to us being the nerds we are today i think if you go way back and and there is an awareness of language that Mm -hmm. you have to have uh you wouldn't go into this if you weren't somehow aware of how words are used around you and Corey and i both have interesting backgrounds in terms of ethnicity. Uh, I grew up in a, at the time, it's no longer, but it was a very, there was a very vibrant uh, Czech American community in mid-Michigan. Yeah. Your mom actually taught Czech language classes, right? That is correct. Uh, my, Even though I'm third generation, um, all eight of my great-grandparents came from what is now either the Czech Republic or Slovakia. I knew five of my great-grandparents. Wow. And because my mother's mother had died when my mother was young, she was Mm -hmm. raised by her grandparents. So she she spoke Czech and learned English in school. Wow. So did your parents speak Czech at home? Not to me. Uh, My father also speaks Czech, but they would, when we would visit my great grandparents, Mm -hmm. they would talk to them in um, Czech. My great grandparents didn't know too much English. I think some of them didn't know any. I found out later some of my great grandparents never even became American citizens. So, uh, well, it was a different time. Yes. Right? Yeah. Uh, they uh, essentially whole communities uh, from Eastern Moravia just picked up in, in the 19 teens, moved over. The point is, I was exposed to um, foreign language quite a bit. Yeah. Did you use, I mean, did you have Czech dictionaries in the house or Czech? We had stuff Czech, in the house, yeah. We had checks. We had Czech textbooks, uh, which okay. included glossaries and the like. And you know, in the '60s, it was a very assimilationist time when I was really little. Uh, there was, I mean, that's why my birth certificate name is Stephen, even though my parents, my mom called me Stepan or Step, mm-hmm. uh, and all the various forms of the vocative. <laughs> Step each coup, double diminutives. Uh, <laughs> the uh, it, it, so, and she taught Czech in adult ed classes, mm-hmm. and. I was taken to a lot of dances and stuff. So I heard it spoken around me to the extent now that when I go over to the Czech Republic, the the, the language sounds very familiar. I can tell where the word breaks are. I just don't know what they're saying because my vocabulary is very small conversationally, (laughs) limited pretty much to uh, trains and times and food. Right. Commands. Yeah. Food. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And what's your, what what did you hear growing up? So I, my parents were, were, we spoke English at home, but I had uh, one grandmother who spoke German and one grandmother who spoke Finnish. And uh, I would hear often, you know, Mostly on the phone, because my my grandparents were, the Finnish grandmother was closer, but they they didn't really speak Finnish in the home. But my mom would speak Finnish to my grandmother on the phone if I was listening and she didn't want me to hear what I was saying. My mom also, I discovered in my teens, spoke German, which I, which, you know, I kind of took for granted was like, oh, yeah, of course you speak German. But 
It was actually, my mom didn't, she took a couple of years of college and then dropped out. And so I was like, you know, that's pretty good for someone who didn't have a, you know, formal college education that she was functionally trilingual. Um, In college, I started taking Czech in college and mm -hmm. learned it better. I can read it fairly well now, but I would go over stuff with my mom and her, her, her Czech is ossified early 20th century peasant Czech of South Moravia. Yeah. Yeah. My grandmother's Finnish was the same way. So when uh, I would go over to my grandmother's house, she would try to teach me what I call kitchen fin. Like, here are the names of ingredients. She would teach me things like heistanupa, which means go sniff your belly button and things like that. And when I went to Finland as an adult, there's this one kind of bread that my grandmother called nisua, which means nisua means wheat. And it was, that's what you called wheat breads when she was a little girl. Every, every, all other bread, lepa, was rye. That's just, of course, it's rye. So she taught me this word nisu, nisua. We went to Finland, my husband, my kids and I, and we're in this big outdoor market and there's a bread truck and I'm very excited. So I go up and I say, I ask in Finnish for Nisua. And there was a guy who, he must have been in his 80s, who turned around and just stared. And the 16-year-old who was at the truck had no idea what I was talking about, because Finnish has since borrowed the Swedish word bola and has turned it into pula. So pula is this, you know, cardamom sweetbread that's made with wheat. Lepa is, you know, just sort of generic bread now, not just rye bread. So yeah, like my Finnish, the Finnish that I had, the, these little bits of Finnish that I picked up as a kid were for the most part entirely useless because it's, you know, it's 80-year-old Finnish. It's, it would be like walking down the street and hearing someone speak in Elizabethan English. Right. And, and the, uh, the, the, the Czech textbook that I had, which I started studying in Chicago in 93, mm -hmm. I mean, the fall had just happened. So the textbooks oh, yeah. were all from the 60s. <laughs> so they were super socialist. Uh, and so I was learning about tractor collectives and all right. this stuff. <laughs> And I, I remember the the second time I went over there in 93, I stayed uh, with some friends mm -hmm. in Brno, who I'm actually going to visit next week. Oh. Uh, I've gone back a lot. Uh, but I, at that time, they were still in college. They had started college. Their freshman year was 1989. So the break between fall and winter term, oh, there was wow. a revolution that changed <laughs> everything, right? Uh, you know, like you do. Yeah. So I go, I've been speaking very mediocre Czech and they of right. course speak English and we get to their dorm room and they, um, they open up the door. And the first thing I said is, which is you have central heating. <laughs> um, <laughs> and they looked at me like, you know that? How is that what you know? Right. Right. The government cheese has arrived. Yes. Yeah, right. The fascinating thing about my mother, um, again, her family, I've been to all the villages that my great grandparents were from. And mm -hmm. when I was at Chicago, I found in the stacks at the library, this fantastic book uh, of, of Czechoslovakian uh, written in the 20s. It's this huge book huh. and it's full of maps. Oh, uh, wow. And one thing it has is a bunch of isogloss maps. Okay. And isogloss, like kind of like in weather, an isobar shows you the, the, the differences in temperature or pressure oh, or whatever. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. And isogloss will tell you, for example, in America, on this side of the line, you say greasy. On this side of the line, you say greasy. Oh, that kind wow. of thing. 
Very cool. Yes. But so this was for Czech and there were it was this it was this right on the on on the Czech Slovak border and there mm-hmm. was a series of lines and here's what you said on one side, here's what you said on the other. And so I called my mom mm-hmm. and one of the isoglosses ran through the village that her Are you her serious? grandma was Yeah. So I'm like, so how do you say this? How do you say this? How yeah. do you say this? And she would say the the appropriate thing to her side of the line. And I right. got to the word horse. Okay. Uh, and that isogloss between Kon and Kun okay. went right through her village. And she couldn't f- she kept vacillating between she, the two. Really? And I'm like, this is so weird. <laughs> I never had anything that formal. I mean, my my Finnish grandmother, you know, taught me individual words. And then and that's really commands. You must know. Come here. Oh, yeah. 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 Come here. Stop. Slow down. Slow down was a big one. Hitasti. That was like I heard that all the time. The swears. Watch it. Oh, yeah. The swears are we'll do a whole episode on multilingual swearing. Yeah. Maria. My dad got mad Baskin, at me once. Yet, yeah. <laughs> My dad got mad at me once. I'm like, where do you think I learned this? Oh I mean, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I so I had just these weird individual words that were kind of weirdly ossified. My German grandmother um would go back and forth between speaking English and German. And so I studied German in high school. I went to a high school that still taught German. And that was really my first contact with a language academically and systematically. Though, I also grew up in Denver, which was highly Spanish-speaking. So I heard Mexican Spanish all the time. It was just assumed that you could navigate your way through Mexican Spanish. So I had I had Finnish, which is not an Indo-European language. I had some German, which is a Germanic language, and then I had Spanish all around me, which is a Romance language. So, you know, I'm being set up pretty well for dealing with Indo-European and Finno-Ogric right. languages. My, my first formal training was in high school with Spanish. I had mm-hmm. three years of it. Um, and to the extent that I, I, I can read Spanish without translating it back in my head, yeah. my spoken Spanish is pretty dicey. Yeah. Uh, but it... it I learned so much about English from studying Spanish. Oh, yeah. I I, learned a ton about English from studying German. I was, I mean, apart from, you know, you're whatever, 13, 14, and and someone throws a case system at you, and you're like, but I remember the point in my high school German class when I was like, oh, wait a minute. Whom? Whom? Yes, that was the one. I didn't understand whom until Spanish. I was like, oh my God, whom is dative? I'm what? Like, I just, I remember being like, I, now I understand whom. I still never used whom correctly. I overcorrected. I used whom all over the place. But I remember I have this vivid, vivid picture in my head of sitting in class. I think I was sitting next to David Acosta and like looking like I had just been hit over like a cartoon, like you're hit over the head and there's the mm-hmm. stars and your eyes cross. That was my that was the point where I connected German and English in in terms of their syntax and in terms of their their morphology. What was uh, in, what's interesting to me is because I was both exposed to Spanish and Czech mm-hmm. uh, at or before 13, I didn't start learning German until college at Northwestern. Okay. Um, so in my head, uh-huh. Czech and Spanish are in one part of my brain. German is in another part of my brain. And 
oftentimes there are some very simple words in Czech and Spanish that I constantly, like, I, I, if, if you quizzed me quickly, I would be like, oh my God, is, is I, I, Pero, is that it is Spanish for dog and it is uh, Czech for pen, uh, but, uh, <laughs> it, 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 oh right. no, Pero is Spanish for dog, right. but Pero with one R is Spanish for butt. And so yeah. when I want to say butt in Czech, I keep going, nebo, pero, nebo, pero. Yeah. And it, it, it just, it's in the same part of my head. Yeah. So when I, I I went to Finland as an adult um, and I was up in Rovaniemi, which is the it's the city that is the gateway to the Arctic Circle. And there's this giant compound. And I mean, it looks like a compound. It's not. It's a shopping mall, actually, called Santa Claus Village. It is one of the only places in Rovaniemi that is in English. And I had small children. We're going to go up. We're going to see Santa Claus. Woo! you made it through however many weeks of us dragging you around Finland and looking at art museums and castles. Now we're going to go meet Santa Claus. So we went up to Santa Claus Village. And while we were there, my husband, Josh, intrepid engineer Josh, uh, is not linguistic at all. We were in Finland for a while, and I think he picked up the word thank you. Uh, Kitas. That was it. I and And as I was in Finland, like, Oh, my finish is coming back, even though it's 80 years old. So we split up in Santa Claus Village. And I'm and I'm like, okay, pretty much everyone here must speak English, right? Mm, some people do, some people don't. And we're getting it's getting late. And I can't find Josh. And we have to take the bus back to the town center because it's uh, it's out in the middle of nowhere. And I and this is the era before everyone had a cell phone. And all of a sudden Josh finds me in this, you know. This very, like, Soviet-looking mall, though it was not Soviet at all. It was just, you know, low concrete buildings with very little decoration. And he grabs me and he pulls me over and to a fur shop. I am not a fur kind of person. And he turns to, he hauls me in, he turns to the shopkeeper, and he says, in English, and this is my wife. And the guy says, oh, welcome in. Uh, ich höre, dass deine Großmutter kommt aus uh, Bayreuth. Ja, ich komme aus Coburg. Totally yeah, and I just lost my goddamn mind. I had no idea how to answer. And I was like, because I, I just spent two weeks immersed in Finnish and I could not make the switch because German lives in a different part of my head. And so I answered in English and then he just comes back in English. Oh, I understand it's very hard to navigate between three languages. I just thought, screw you, dude. Like, I'm not that good at this. That happened to me as well. Um, when I the, when I first started going to the Czech Republic, my mm -hmm. Czech was worse than it is now. My German was much, much better. Right. And in the early 90s, especially for the older people in the Czech Republic, their their second language was German, not English. So oh, I was using my I was using my German a lot, like in hotels and yeah, that yeah. kind of thing. Uh, and also, um, I look, I have the phenotype, I have the Czech phenotype. I I, I get off the train. Very People homogenous. People start asking you directions. Well, they for, do yeah. that anywhere, but yeah, <laughs> they. they uh, but everyone looks like me, right? But they can also tell that I'm not from there. There, so um, right. I'm a tourist, so I'm probably German. So they throw the German rather than the English. Okay. But at the one time I needed German, uh, I was taking, I was flying in and out of Vienna, and I had taken the bus from Brno uh, mm -hmm. to 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 Vienna. And at that time, this is before the EU, so right. there was a border crossing, uh -huh. and it took forever. So I get to downtown Vienna, and I basically need to get on a commuter rail to get to the airport, and I get to the ticket counter, and um, uh, 
all of my German goes out the window and I just start going uh, Luft plots, you know, and making, and he gives and, me this. And gesturing? Yes. Were you flapping your wings? Yes. And I'm sure he spoke English, right? Uh, he hands me this ticket. I give them money and I just run and he just points and I just run down the staircase and this train comes up and I'm assuming it's the one from the airport. <laughs> it is. I hop. It was nuts. But I couldn't say, you know, uh, I'm not even going to try because my German accent is horrible now. Oh, yeah. yeah. My German accent's really, really bad. I now speak, I speak Finnish with a German accent. I speak German with some unknowable accent that is a mix of all these things. So when I, so that was my high school. I took German in high school. Um, I spoke a little bit of it with my German grandmother. The Finnish grandmother at that point had moved and, and I was not... My, my cousin, my younger cousin, was the one who really got the intensive Finnish language lessons. I just got some, like, here's how you say eggs, here's how you say milk, here's how you say dog, you know, horse, whatever. And and so when I got to college, um, I was actually, I went to college to be pre-med, and I took German in my first year. I took a German literature class that was taught in German. And, oh, okay. And then, you know, for a bunch of reasons, you can read about it in the first chapter of my book, I switched majors to medieval studies, very lucrative. And I so I started taking old old English. That was one of my first language classes. What? Yeah. (laughs) Right. It's just it's a very long story. But I took old English in the first day. I was like, oh, this is like German with extra letters. Okay. like, all right, this looks and it does look remarkably like German. So, so I was like, oh, okay. And, and there was a point where in my old English classes, where I realized this was actually not German, this was English. And that blew my, like, it just blew my mind. I was like, this is English. You can trace the word brother back to here. You can trace the word martyr back to Old English, which borrowed it from Latin. You can trace the word bishop back to Old English that borrowed it from Latin. You know, it was just like, I lost my mind. So that was the point at which English suddenly became more than just this, this thing that I spoke that has weird rules that I could never, ever understand. I was always the kid in high school that I still, my 11th grade teacher gave me back my final paper, that, and I will never forget the the thing at the top said, an A plus idea corrupted by C grammar. And I just thought, yeah, this pretty much sums up my entire experience with I English. I went to a high school that, I mean, it was the early 80s. It was mm-hmm. industrial Michigan, and there just wasn't a lot of money. So we only had five hours a day. Right. If you got an A in advanced English in ninth grade, you didn't have to take English again. Are you serious? So I didn't have English classes from 10th to 12th grade. You've got to be kidding me. There just were only so many hours in the day. Um, I mean, I, I, you know, I took a research writing class and I got to take a couple electives, but I didn't, I I didn't have like English, English because they assumed, oh, you did well in ninth grade. You're fine. Um, (laughs) The, uh, I, I, I too started out with a different major. I started out at Michigan State uh, as a theater major and ended up dropping out after my sophomore year and moving to Chicago. And I transferred into Northwestern as a junior the next year. And I essentially had to pick a major. 
on the spot because I was oh, coming man. in as a junior. Yeah. And I had always had two interests, language and um, maps. And it was like linguistics or geography. And this ties to another influence was the massive, growing up, our dictionary was the massive 1966 Random House Dictionary. The yeah, first edition. Mine was too. Which had a great uh, map section in the back. Yeah, it did. And it also had a had word glossaries for French, German, Spanish, and I think Italian. And oh, I don't remember there that a part. Massive section in the back, of, you know, just all the. So I would immerse myself in that. Plus, my parents had Russian, Latin, and Czech books. Uh, so I was just constantly immersed. Did you like make up fake languages? When you were oh, growing no. up, oh no, I was I never. Did, I, did I was. That, yeah. I was never. That they were all smart. conjugated and stuff. It was totally <laughs> geeky. That's amazing. I would make maps. Um, I would trace maps um, somewhere. I, I actually have these in 1983 and 1982 or 84. I made world maps color coded when I would watch the Miss Universe pageant, uh, <laughs> being a nascent gay teenager who didn't realize it uh, while watching. <laughs> The pageants, I would uh, like color code the maps as to which countries participated and which didn't. Oh, wow. That's pretty intense. Yeah. That's um, pretty good. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, but anyway, I had to choose. And I uh, had my uncle sometime in the late 70s when he was in college, must have taken a linguistics course because he had a uh, intro textbook written by Akimajian and a couple other people. And like okay. I read it and it was like, oh, this is interesting. And I had that affinity towards language. So yeah. I was like, ah, I'll, I'll study linguistics. Wow. I uh, see. I don't think I realized I had an affinity for language until I was well into my college career. And someone asked, I mean, someone who was like in my dorm and who was a gov major or something was like, wait a minute, you're currently taking three different languages? Because I was taking Old Norse, Latin, you had to take Latin, like a million years of Latin. And I was taking an old English translating class. And I was like, yeah. And they were like, how, how do you, how do you do it? And I was like, I, I don't know. You just, you do. Mm-hmm. I don't know. And I, the thing that was, that is sort of funny to me about ending up a lexicographer is in order to be a lexicographer, you have to have a really good sense of the quote unquote rules of English. That's one of like at Merriam-Webster. That's one of the things they tell you you need to have when you come in. And, and I felt like I had a good sense of what those rules were because I was always in violation of those rules. <laughs> like I loved Old English because Old English is a dead language. It's not growing. You can figure it out. I, you know, and, and even Latin, like, okay, you got classical Latin, and then you've got medieval Latin, you have ecclesiastical Latin, you have new Latin, like, but it's an ordered system. And I was like, I can do ordered systems. English didn't seem like an ordered system to me. So when I interviewed and they were like, well, you have a good grasp on the rules of English. I was like, yes, I do. Thinking internally. Because I get all of them wrong all the time. The thing of it is, is... <laughs> Speaking, speaking of the rules of English, <laughs> we, we violate no, them. No double copulas. Yeah. Uh, we violate, not you and I, although we do. I mean, yes, people you and I violate do. them constantly. Um, but it, there's at, at least when I violate them, I understand what I'm doing, which is why we have those sections in our podcast notes like, oh, here's our mistakes this time right. around. Yeah, this so is what that, Corey mispronounced this time. And so you don't have to gotcha us. Yeah. Uh, we've already gotcha ourselves. Um, <laughs> A self gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At Northwestern, um, randomly, I ha- uh, one of my pr- uh, my class advisor, uh, Richard Spears, who was a lexicographer, happened to teach oh, yeah. a course in lexicography. It was one of something like a dozen lexicography courses taught 
in the States throughout the 80s. Yeah, I was going to say. There were if, not many. If that much, I mean. It was completely random. And after I graduated, he started giving me freelance work. And I was working for National Textbook Company. One thing led to another. Here's how times have changed. <laughs> um, I wrote. After seven years of freelancing, I wrote to the American Heritage Dictionary and essentially said, here's my background. You should hire me. It was, and they, and and they, they did. did. It was a little more decorous <laughs> than that. But it was I didn't even know if there was a job opening. It's like, hey, I think I've got the background for this. Um, hire me. And uh, yeah. So at Merriam-Webster, everyone gets hired in as an editorial assistant. That's the position you come in at. And uh, Merriam-Webster in the last couple of months advertised for one. And I, I think they got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of resumes. And so, yes, now it's completely the inverse. Like there might be one job posted every handful of years yes. and you get a thousand people applying for it. And it, it wasn't just because I had had a bachelor's degree and done some freelancing. In that interim period, I also attended graduate school at the University of Chicago. <laughs> did not get my doctorate. I did everything with the dissertation. Um, but I one of one of my field exams was in lexicography, which involved reading. Really? Yeah. I read thousands of pages on lexicography and had to take a field exam in that. My major field exam was in pragmatics or context. Oh, well, um, that's perfect for lexicography. Yes. That's all lexicography is, is context. I read over 6,000 pages of oh, books on uh, of uh, articles on context, and then I had to take a week-long test. One of my test questions was, discuss the use of the term topic in the literature. <laughs> and every theorist uses topic in a different way. It was in, it was it was immense. That's horrifying. Um, you can one if if in in my book uh, is English changing. There's a there's a there's a chapter on context, and it draws from uh, all of that that I went through to really? uh, get that far in, uh, the, in, in at school. I uh, and and this, but I got the job without having to write the dissertation, so I had moved out to Boston and. There I was. I think that happens to a lot of people in lexicography. Like, uh, I don't need the dissertation. Now I got a job. But yeah, so so I uh, I have no advanced degree. Um, I've taken graduate level courses, and that's as far as I went. You don't actually need an advanced degree to do lexicography. You just need to be incredibly well read. That was the thing I was in high school. I was a compulsive reader. Me I was too. I was not I just read so much. Oh yeah, I mean I still do this. Like. Yeah. If I've got a train ride that's more than five minutes, I will have read and proofread and edited every sign on that train. Of course, sometimes the reading that I did as a kid was like Valley of the Dolls. <laughs> <laughs> I read I read a Clan of the Cave Bear in sixth grade, wow. and I wrote a book report on it. Wow. I, I, I read a lot of Michener. I read whatever was in my parents' cabinet. I do remember I was like in third grade, mm -hmm. and my parents had a copy of Solzhen Heathen's uh, the the first circle. Oh my god! I read like the first two chapters, and I'm like, I, I remember saying to myself, I am not old enough to understand what this means. I can read the words, <laughs> I know what the words mean. I have no idea what this book is about, and I put it away. So I that's was like, impressive. Yeah. That's very impressive. So yeah, my linguistic background was was mostly English, mostly as a um, terrible writer of it. I was always told I was a bad writer, so I assumed. I know the rules of English You're because I violate writer. them all. You're a I, great writer. I am a great writer. I am a great writer, you are. damn it. But, you know, I'm probably not a great academic writer, which is what you have to do in high school. 
Do you have any weird lexical gaps? For example, um, I was an adult before I knew that the English word for wooden spoon was wooden spoon. Because I only had heard it in the Czech, the Vajajka, that was used to threaten us. And I remember I was in my early 20s. I'm like, there must be an English word for this. And I was so disappointed to find out there is no one word for wooden spoon. It's called a wooden spoon. Right. Like, why doesn't it have a name? Right. Like, my lexical gaps tend to be more... Um, oh, it's just, you know, that's that makes more sense in Finnish. It's they're not so much individual word things, though, like when I hit when we were in Finland, I remember getting on a bus and the guy asked me in Finnish, uh, do you want a palo lipu? And I was like, what the hell's a palo lipu? I knew lipu was ticket. I was like, palo, palo. That sounds really familiar. And I and I was like, you know, was uh, palo, and he he's uh he just made a he made a circle with his finger, and he said uh uh ball, and I was like that's right, palo is the Finnish word for ball. A ball trip is a trip that is a round trip. A round trip, <laughs> and I was awesome. like that makes so much more sense than round trip. Palo lipu makes more sense. Yeah, that was the thing that really hooked me on historical linguistics, though only from the language side, not the theoretical side. Was sort of tracing things through. Old English or Old Norse into Middle English or Anglo-French and then tracing it into or when the Latin came in. My my one party trick as a lexicographer is I can look at any English word and tell you approximately what century it came into the language. That is an awesome party trick. Yeah, it's it only impresses about five people, but that's OK. That's I'll take very it. cool. And I could, you know, complain as an English speaker how hard it was formerly learning Czech with its seven cases. But of course, that doesn't compare <laughs> to Finnish. Right, which has, I think, 19 or something like that. That, yeah, I still haven't, I still haven't figured out the Finnish cases. I, I'm, I've I'm, tried really hard. and mm. I mush some of them up. And actually with my mom, she's, conf- as a lot of people from you know, the, 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 the peasants of 1910 right. have conflated the seven cases down into five or four in a lot of things like right. the, the locket if it gets munched into the dative or whatever. Yeah. I'm not exactly sure what's getting munched, but stuff is getting munched. <laughs> the fact that you even know the names is pretty impressive. Yeah. I can't even name all 19 cases in Finnish. I, I mean, love... I, I can probably name them. I can't tell you what they do. Inessive, I love the fact that the Czech still has the vocative. Um, So when you call someone by their name, there's a different ending if you're directly addressing them. And so one of the things uh, for feminine words ending in A, the vocative Uh ends in O. So I remember being over there and watching Beverly Hills 90210 on the TV. And you hear people (laughs) going, Brendo, Brendo. (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah. And that seems like a pretty, Brendo seems like a good place to draw it all to a close. Yep. And so that's how we got where we are. Yep. And uh, again, rate us on iTunes if you like. Tell your friends to subscribe if you like. We're kind of, you know, it's midsummer. We're taking it kind of easy. We'll probably ramp some stuff up again in the fall, but every other Thursday. So the not the next Thursday from today, but the Thursday after. A fortnight following. Ooh, contextually what today means. Oh, God. Because you're saying that today, (laughs) the day that we utter it, and they're taking it today, the day they're listening to it. If they're one of those people who listens it on the day that comes out, this is the type of thing we can talk about uh, Bueller's Origo for days. Yeah, temporal multiverses. Yes. Okay, okay, we're getting sidetracked. (laughs) And now we're done. We will talk to you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.